But I think that's why Mission Impossible stands apart. It, it doesn't go into that temptation of trying to out James Bond. James Bond. No, it's its own thing. It does and its, its own a fully thing. formed version of its own thing. It has its own identity, and I think audiences have that connection. And you can see that that we're now in a position where these Mission Impossible movies with the same creative team and with the same star are still coming out and bringing in audiences and you've already had two entire James Bond relaunches <laughs> during the same time frame This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, the Pulse of Theatrical Exhibition. And in this week's episode, I'll be joined by Russ Fisher, the Editorial Director of the Box Office Studios, a division of our company that provides editorial services for movie theaters. As we look back at the entire Mission Impossible franchise at the movies. We'll be going over the box office history of Mission Impossible on the big screen, a franchise that has graced our screen since 1996, leading up to the release on Wednesday, July 12th, of the latest entry in the series, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Russ will be joining me shortly as we go over the entire cultural, social, and financial history of these movies. We've both seen the new entry, by the way. We won't be getting into that one because we don't want to share any spoilers. We want to make sure that the audience gets to enjoy that movie at their theater of choice, especially that last half hour, which will keep uh, moviegoers at the edge of their seats. Russ will be coming in in the feature segment of this episode to go over that entire box office history. But before we get into that, we should go over the news here because we've got a couple of headlines here and an disappointing box office weekend to go over to be completely uh, to be completely honest let's go through the good news first uh, leading with the positives Centicos the South Texas chain based in San Antonio is set to become the eighth largest circuit in North America after reaching an agreement to acquire Amstar Cinemas and the Grand Theaters from Southern Theaters that acquisition will increase the Centicos footprint from 121 screens at 10 locations to a whopping 377 screens and 27 locations in North America. Centicos will now be expanding to a larger portion of Texas and going into new markets like Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, and North Carolina. Our congratulations to Centicos for the deal. But now, unfortunately, the bad news, we do have to get into it. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny from Disney becoming the latest title to not work at the box office. We'll be likely looking back at this movie as one of the biggest misfires of the year. The nostalgia factor once again not working with legacy IP among general audiences. The movie opened to $60 million domestically over three-day opening weekend here in North America and $70 million overseas for a $130 million global haul. To put that into context on the domestic front, in 2008, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull hit $100 million in its opening weekend. That makes a new installment a 40% drop in a three-day opening frame when we look at the like-for-like -like comparisons. We even have to just go back to last month when Transformers Rise of the Beasts opened to $61 million in June, a higher number than the opening weekend haul from 
Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I think disappointing all around to see these figures. A lot of reasons why this happened. Uh, let's start with the obvious one. The movie just simply didn't have the critical word of mouth and excitement coming into the opening weekend. Uh, an early, early screening at the Cannes Film Festival produced uh, not the best reactions from the critical community, which just lingered. And then when the film did hit theaters, it looked like audiences did respond more favorably than critics. Dial of Destiny scored four out of five star amongst general audiences from Comscore's post-track polling and hit a B-plus cinema score average. Meanwhile, Rotten Tomatoes reporting an 89% verified audience rating for the film, so at least the popular word of mouth is significantly better than the critical consensus for the film. When it came down to demographics, however, younger audiences simply didn't show up to see this nostalgia sequel from Disney. Only 25% of the audience below the age of 25. Meanwhile, the biggest demographic for the new Indiana Jones movie coming in for moviegoers over the age of 54, that representing 21% of the ticket sales on the opening weekend. Uh, an extremely disappointing figure here for Disney and the Indiana Jones series. But the first trilogy, the first three films in the series were beloved in the 1980s. There was that long pause, the 2008 fourth installment didn't really work that well, even though financially it performed according to what I think everybody wanted it to perform to. This one doesn't even get that far and that'll do it for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny at the box office. Moving on here at the new movies opening next weekend, we do have to look at the three-day debut of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 as a bright spot. Now, remember, this movie is opening on a Wednesday, so you will be getting uh, five-day opening weekend figures uh, that will mold how we talk about this in the press in the coming days. We are in this conversation just for a simple, comparable uh, purpose just talking about the three-day Friday to Sunday opening weekend, we are expecting Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 to open to 65 to $75 million on that uh, frame after the July 12th weekend. Uh, coming in before that, we've got two other studio titles, from uh, one from Sony, one from Lionsgate. Uh, let's go with the Sony one, Insidious, the Red Door, uh, new horror entry coming into the market. That's expected to open between 20 and $30 million in the market, while Lionsgate is coming up with an R-rated comedy, Joyride, a film that screened, I think, to a positive reaction at CinemaCon 2023. We are expecting more modest results from that title an eight to $15 million opening weekend range there. Those are the numbers that we have coming up ahead of us. I think everyone in this industry is expecting Dead Reckoning Part 1, the new Mission Impossible movie, to help move the needle a little bit forward. But as we're looking at the market, at the crowded marketplace here between one title and another not working as expected, we are coming in with, I think, more modest expectations for the Mission Impossible sequel. That is gonna change on a daily basis as we get pre-sale numbers, as we get Wednesday preview numbers starting next week. So don't forget to visit boxofficepro.com to get every single detail on the theatrical market, both here and overseas. 
Now, without further ado, let's go with my colleague Russ Fisher after the break, and we will be going over, as promised, the entire box office history of the Mission Impossible franchise coming up right after this pause. Welcome back here on the Box Office Podcast. In our feature segment, I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, joined by Russ Fisher, our co-host and colleague, the editorial director at the Box Office Studios, which is a division of our company that provides editorial services for movie theaters. Let's start with the first one here, Russ. Mission Impossible released on May 22nd, 1996. Mission Impossible, of course, being adapted from a popular American TV series that ran from 1966 to 1973 originally, revived uh, as some other shows from the 60s were revived in the (laughs) 1980s, 88 to 90. I'm thinking Twilight Zone specifically, which was very well liked, went through... I think, you know, a mixed revival in the 80s where there's some memorable things that happened there, but didn't have the same cachet. And I think a, a big part of that is not only that nostalgia that you get in the 1980s towards some of that television culture from the 1960s. A good example of this that we'll get into in a little bit is the success of Brian De Palma's 1987 big screen adaptation of the TV show The Untouchables, which was a huge blockbuster hit. I mean, when we talk about De Palma, and we'll be talking a lot about De Palma in a little bit. Uh, That's probably one of the best examples of De Palma taking something in the zeitgeist and converting it, modernizing it. During that time, the 1980s, I think there was a sort of gold rush in going back to these TV series from the 60s and trying to see what we can do with them. And you start seeing those movies come out slowly in the early to mid 90s. Before we get into this movie, there's a production context here in which several movies that are based on television series from that era come out. Some do well in the box office, some not that well. And then, of course, the influence of the James Bond relaunch, which was dormant after Timothy Dalton exited the role in the late 1980s. I think that also goes into play here. But before we get into all of that, and it is all that we're going to get into, (laughs) did you have any connection to the show, Russ? Because I haven't seen a single episode. None. I'd seen some of the original series. My primary association with the show overall was the music. That theme, that, that it's an amazing theme, theme song. song. Yeah. It yeah. is an incredible theme song. You know, top tier, one of the best TV themes ever written. Very catchy, very memorable. And I think half of what sells a movie in the first place is just being like, yeah, we get to use the music. You know, I'll, I'll everybody tell you knows this right this now. I think it's up there with the Flintstones. Where it's like immediately recognizable for people, whether you have a connection with the show or not. I had never seen the show. It wasn't in syndication in Mexico uh, when I was growing up, but I knew the music. And of course, we talk about the production context around the movie. In 1993, there is an adaptation of the popular television series, The Fugitive, that does very well at the box office. In 1994, Mel Gibson comes on for an adaptation of the TV show Western Maverick at the movies. I'm not sure that does fantastically well. I mean, Maverick didn't, yeah, didn't hit the same way. The year before Mission Impossible comes out, the James Bond franchise is relaunched with Pierce Brosnan at the helm, a TV star in his own right. With GoldenEye, that does fantastically well. And I think there is a new attention. Huge success. Brought into these international spy thrillers. And then a year after Mission Impossible comes out in 1996, 
Hollywood gives it a shot again by putting the co-star of Top Gun with Tom Cruise, Val Kilmer, at the helm of The Saint in 1997. That does not go over too well. But this isn't something that just exists in a vacuum. There is a series of these films. There's actually a strategy here of Hollywood looking at this well and seeing what they can develop from it. And I mean, it's worth saying, too, that through all of this, like this movie that was released in 1996 wasn't like they started developing this in 94 when Goldeneye came out or even, you know, a year or two before that. It's like Paramount's been trying to make a Mission Impossible movie for a long time. They've had a lot of people come in, they've and they've just never cracked it. Nobody's ever come up with something that got a green light. And then in the early 90s, Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner, who's been his agent for over a decade, decide to form a production company together. And the first thing that they really successfully put together is a remake of a big screen reboot of Mission Impossible. But they start, I mean, they start that. It took them years to put this together. There were different permutations, you know, different directorial combos, different script ideas, all sorts of stuff that ultimately, you know, led to this Brian De Palma directed movie that comes out in, you know, May of 96. I think the one director that really pushed this the most in pre-production is Sidney Pollock, that at least in Tom Cruise's career, Mm -hmm. Tom Cruise has mentioned, of Pollock having a sort of mentorship role in evolving beyond just being an actor and looking at directing and looking at picking directors rather than roles. He begins developing a Mission Impossible movie for Cruise and Wagner, but Eventually gets frustrated, uh, apparently drops out to go do a Sabrina remake starring Harrison Ford. And uh, according to Tom Cruise, speaking to uh, a fantastic podcast we have to mention here, uh, if you guys are interested in the Mission Impossible series, there is a great podcast called Light the Fuse, which is a fantastic in-depth look with great interviews on every Mission Impossible movie that is out there. Highly, highly recommended. But uh, yeah, apparently uh, Tom Cruise goes to dinner at Steven Spielberg's house. And as Tom Cruise recounts it is, uh, of course, Brian De Palma's there. Because why wouldn't Brian De Palma be at Spielberg's house having dinner? In the early to mid-90s, they got to talking and it became obvious to Tom Cruise to offer the project that Sidney Pollock left. You know what, Brian De Palma, you did a version of this ish with the untouchables. Do you want to come back, add your sensibility to Mission Impossible? De Palma at this point is, yeah, I wouldn't call it damaged goods. That's unfair to a fantastic filmmaker, but he is a liability after, in 1990, the release of The Bonfire of the Vanities, big screen adaptation of the best-selling novel by Tom Wolfe, just absolutely gets the adaptation part wrong, absolutely gets the Tom Hanks part of it all wrong, gets the Bruce Willis part of it wrong. It's one of the biggest fiascos, I think, in recent film history. It's like a Heaven's Gate level, you know, misfire. It's, it is it is a poster child for things going wrong at every level in the studio system. That's how people see it. You know, now, of course, Bonfire of the Vanities has some fans. There are some redeeming qualities about it. I totally get it. But at the time, it was seen as one of the biggest failures. It was a huge, huge issue. And I think that that gets all of the success that De Palma enjoyed in the 1970s and 80s. 
and really tampers it, right? I mean, De Palma is a filmmaker that always had, like Hitchcock, an eye on his films having a commercial appeal to them. He does have an artistic sensibility, a very clear artistic sensibility, but he's a commercial director. He comes from that generation of Scorsese, of Schrader, of Lucas, of Spielberg. But I think he kind of oscillates between the Scorsese craftsmanship and the Spielberg audience friendliness and just rides that line. He's friends with those guys. You know, he's one of the the movie brats guys. He, you know, he's part of that crew that has Lucas and Spielberg and, a, and you know, and that Scorsese is tangentially part of. In the late 60s and early 70s, they're all sort of like a bunch of bros. And John Milius was in that crowd. You know, he's a big part of it. And De Palma is absolutely in there. And the thing is, what I would say, though, where you were like saying, you know, on one hand, he's sort of Scorsese. On the other hand, he's Spielberg. De Palma does have this really strong genre core, you know, and it's a thing he goes back to over. And sometimes he leverages it to great success as when he adopts Stephen King's Carrie, you know, and he kind of creates this genre defining template with Carrie. But I mean, like Phantom of the Paradise is an amazing, super weird movie that, you know, nobody but Brian De Palma could make. And every once in a while, he like comes back and he does this genre stuff that really hits. And The Untouchables is kind of a version of that in a way. It's just like it's a prestige version because it's got Connery and it, you know, and it's just, but it is still fundamentally that, I think. It evolves the source material. And I think he does that with Scarface, remaking a very gritty you know, classic from the 1930s, a Michael Cortese picture. Yes, we do know Michael Cortese by name in this podcast, but he goes and he remakes Scarface into its own thing. You know, totally different thing. Uh, yeah. Scarface on paper is a bad pitch, is a really bad pitch at a meeting, but De Palma turns it into something that's worth watching and that's still remembered. He makes movies that you don't forget. But he's a liability at this point. Like we're saying, it's not his star is on the wane. There are questions about him. And if you're going to hire somebody to spend a bunch of money on a tentpole that's important to a studio with a splashy thing, it's not gonna. He's not going to be anywhere near the top of the list. He's not even probably going to be on the list in the early to mid 1990s. Yeah, and uh, Tom Cruise believes in him enough that in the first movie that Tom Cruise decides to produce. He brings in the guy that just bungled the last big studio project movie he had. In the interim, he has a thriller with John Lithgow raising Kane. He makes Carlito's Way, which is a hit, not a huge hit, but enough of a but hit. It does okay. Yeah, he does, does the okay. genre. He does a couple like mid-level genre movies, yeah. and he Goes makes back them to the work. Basics. Yeah, yeah. But he's given an assignment here, a big assignment. And De Palma speaking in Noah Baumbach's wonderful documentary that I highly recommend, De Palma, where I'm going to be quoting some of those interviews, tells Noah Baumbach that he approaches Mission Impossible as a director for hire because he, quote, was determined to make a huge hit. He was not vague at all about this. He knew what his career needed, and he knew what he had to do to get there. Another thing he says uh, in this documentary when talking about the film is he's saying that, quote, this was a situation where whatever Tom Cruise wanted to do, Paramount would make. They didn't care. They just wanted to do Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. When the movie comes out and Roger Ebert reviews it, and a lot of the stuff in Ebert's review is like, you know, he is more concerned with style than story. 
which is wise, since if this movie ever paused to explain itself, it would take a very long time. And then later Ebert says, and this is a positive review, by the way, later Ebert says, this is a movie that exists in the instant and we must exist in the instant to enjoy it. And it's, and it's kind of like, you know, the whole thing is, you know, the bottom line on a film like this is Tom Cruise looks cool and holds our attention while doing neat things that we don't quite understand, doing them so quickly and with so much style that we put our questions on hold and go with the flow. And, and it's like, it's funny because those things exactly mesh up. And I think that fundamentally that's always what these movies are. I think that's an ethos that even as these movies have become more ambitious from a character and structural perspective to the degree that we get that mission possible fallout, which I think has some genuinely effective emotional beats in it. Like I think that movie works because of its characters and how they interact fundamentally this is always a series about spectacle and and i think to cruise's credit and the credit of those who he's worked with over the years he very much keeps an audience in mind and is very much making these movies in order to like let me show you something and not just like in a transformers way let me show you something you've never seen before it's like let me show you a thing that you think you know and I'm going to give it to you in a way that you haven't seen anybody do it before. And I think they continually go back to that as a central ethos, as a central approach to the movie making. And I think they continually, to different degrees, get it right. And that's why they're still making these movies almost 30 years after that first one came out. And what you mentioned in Ebert's review is still part of the series Absolutely. today. And I think part of what, what makes it work, and De Palma is aware of this, even at the script level. It's very clear to him, as soon as he enters this project, that this isn't a strict remake of the TV show where you have a cast of characters, where you have a team. One of the quotes that he tells uh, Noah Baumbach is saying, quote, Mission Impossible is basically about a team of specialists. Now we had to turn this into a Tom Cruise movie. Then I said well, the first thing we have to do is kill off the whole team. And that's exactly what happens. Really, within the first 15 minutes, again, spoilers, get over it. You'll be fine. This movie came out a long time ago. But in the first 15 minutes, this movie that exists in the universe as a story of a team, of an ensemble, turns into a Tom Cruise movie by killing off every single other character in the opening sequence. A bold move, again, it works in the service of where this movie is going. And I think part of that also has to do with, let's say, the less interesting parts about talking about the Mission Impossible movies. We're go- not going to be talking too much about plot. We're not going to be talking too much about character motivation. That's really not why these movies exist. And that's something that Tom Cruise understands. And that's definitely something that Brian De Palma understands. So much so that in this movie, you've got two dueling screenwriters updating the script as they're shooting. This is something that will happen throughout every single Mission Impossible movie that's been made, really up until the ones that are in production now. Production delays, recastings, rewrites, writers coming in, directors falling out, actors coming in and out. That happens all the time. These are not easy movies to make. But the weird thing is I don't have that feeling as I'm watching the finished films that these were troubled productions at all. Maybe with a second one, but not the second that one much. feels like that, but but that's the only one, and it's kind of amazing because like the fourth one, Ghost Protocol, which is 
the one that I think is pretty consistently, you know, for fans of the series, Ghost Protocol is one of their favorites consistently. It's pretty high in my ranking. And Ghost Protocol was a massively troubled production to the point that a guy Tom Cruise had worked with as a writer on another movie, Christopher McQuarrie, was brought in to save the movie. And he does so, so well that he becomes the co-architect of the rest of the series with Tom Cruise. But he to the comes in where- during production, like as they're shooting it, like at the reshoot level, he comes in, like three quarters of the film is done. Is done. And McQuarrie comes in as a like uncredited rewrite guy. And, and like you mentioned, just completely takes reins of it. And the franchise goes on a different level like ditches fundamental concepts about the movie and in doing so like completely rewrites the trajectory of the series probably rewrites the trajectory of tom cruise's career certainly rewrites the trajectory of his own career to the degree where at this point tom cruise and christopher mcquarrie are like an inseparable duo that you can't really imagine a mission movie being made without the two of them working together. You feel like if at any point, certainly if Cruise is done, it feels like Mission's done. And I, it kind of feels like if Macquarie was done, Mission is also done. Like, how do you do it without him at this point? It's really interesting how we evolve from a sort of all-star team of directors and star to a very great kinship and, and working relationship between Macquarie as a writer-director and Tom Cruise as star in what the series is today. We'll go into that evolution shortly. Let's go back here for this first movie, for the De Palma part of the conversation, because there's, there's so many avenues to, to take this. Let's just go back to 1996 real fast, Russ. Do you remember where you were when you saw this movie? Yeah, I was living in Boston. I was just starting to work in film production. I saw Mission at the Somerville Theater, which is a, a, at the time, you know, it's an independent movie house. I think it's still independent. It had just been renovated at the time, so it was like kind of reopened and yeah, and that's a couple of blocks from my house. I walked up there and saw Mission, and then went back and saw it a couple more times while it was still open. And I loved the movie. I was kind of surprised to love it, but it was like it's Tom Cruise, it's De Palma, it's this, you know, action-y spy thriller thing, like all of this stuff that I like. But then it worked for me in a way that was surprising to me in a way that was maybe surprising to a lot of people. I don't know, maybe that was a common experience where people were like, oh, okay, let's go see this thing. And then it turns out that it's super entertaining and kind of ballsy in the way that the best De Palma movies are, where he's like, I'm going to come up with the idea of these images and just immerse you in them. And it's like the, you know, the scene of, of Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise's character, Ethan Hunt, suspended over a floor trying to, you know, steal this digital data from the secure government facility. It's like, it's an amazing image and it's executed so skillfully. And it's like, it calls back to like classic heist movies where, you know, you've got Rafifi or, you know, you can go to a couple of different places with it. But De Palma does these, like, he can do these mostly wordless sequences. He's His visual storytelling is exceptional. And I think he uses that to great effect in the first movie where he's not relying on flashy camera stuff. He's not relying, it's like, he does a lot of quick editing, but the storytelling, the fundamentals are there and are very strong. 
the visual storytelling specifically. And you're yeah. absolutely right in that even though you've got uh, screenwriters like David Kep, a very accomplished screenwriter, writing half of this script, while simultaneously you have the legendary uh, Robert, Robert Town, Town writing the <laughs> yeah. other half of the script. You don't know what's getting used, what isn't. De Palma's able to come in and do what he does best in telling a story visually and not really relying on dialogue too much, not really relying on a plot or character. I remember watching this in my hometown in Mexico. It was May of 1996. The midpoint of every Mission Impossible movie has arguably the biggest like suspense climax. The midpoint in this one is the high wire scene. And I'm watching this as an 11-year-old at the movies right in the middle of the best part of Mission Impossible like hastily spliced together the intermission it's an intermission like go buy candy at the lobby snipe and like a seven minute break that's that's exactly what it felt like then that's actually the last time i saw an, an intermission in a movie after that and i don't know maybe this is completely anecdotal i'd be surprised if I'm the only person that remembers this. But I do remember this being the last movie in Mexico that I saw with an intermission. And it's also the most egregious, like imposed intermission you could possibly imagine. But I loved it. I loved it. As an 11 year old, it was everything I needed it to be. There's a lot of stuff in this movie that is still in these movies. You know, the idea of like, and it runs sort of counter to, to like a James Bond film where it's like, there's gadgets, but they're not reliable. You know, there's like this thing where tech gets you to a certain point, but there's a lot of like, yes, but, or yes, and storytelling where it's like, okay, this works and what's next, or this doesn't work, but you know, this works, but not for very long. So what are we going to have to do? And it sets up that dynamic that I think works really well consistently throughout these films. The other thing I really like about this movie and counter to like Scarface and counter to a lot of other action movies is it's not really a gun movie. This is not a shootout movie. It's not a gunfight movie. It's not. And I really appreciate that because it just gets kind of super boring that every movie along a certain line kind of, you know, kind of filters down to being a gun movie eventually. And this is not a gun movie. And I think it's cool as hell. And then, of course, the next guy that they get to direct is John Woo. Is the best guy that has ever made gun movies. So after you hit it out of the park with a movie that would be labeled under suspense instead of action at the video store, you go to John Woo. Yeah. yeah, you go to John Woo, who I love, who's great, but makes a very different movie in Mission Impossible 2. But I do think that like not a gun movie thing comes back. It's not like they shy away from guns entirely in these movies by any means. But the biggest and most exciting sequences in the mission movies, especially from Ghost Protocol on, are really not they're not gun sequences. You know, they're imagined differently. There's a lot of car chases, there's a lot of foot chases, there's a lot of like physical exertion, obviously, as we will discuss. But I do appreciate, and I think that's, you know, probably part of the reason, it's one of many reasons I like these films as much as I do, is that the sort of de-emphasis on shootouts and guns overall sets these movies apart. Yeah. Me. Yeah, it's the stunts, it's the sleight of hand, 
It's that Hitchcock game of giving the audience just as much information as they need to keep them interested rather than have your heroes shoot their way out of a situation. I think that is part of the reason why Mission Impossible, the first one, the De Palma film, is still, I think, I wouldn't say revered, but I think it's still looked back. I think it's very well liked. Yeah, Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think if you... You know, if you ask a bunch of people who like these movies to rank them, I think this one would consistently be in the top three. It would it's number two for me. This for me too. You know. And at the box office, this movie was a strong hit, both in North America and overseas. Back when the overseas box office wasn't what it was today, it still made 60% of its market share outside of North America. An anomaly back then in 1996, $181 million in North America, $276 million outside of the U.S.-Canada market. And I'd love to hear about that from Cruz or from maybe even Macquarie now, because I think that 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 storytelling that is primarily visual, that isn't reliant on, you know, there are big exposition dumps in these movies, but you don't really need them to fully understand. And as these movies go on, they're very, very good about being like, here's the important thing. Here's what they need to get. Here's what they need to overcome to get it. Here's what'll happen if they don't get it. And they're all, these points are very clearly set out and repeatedly so, so they're impossible to miss. And I wonder if that helps bolster these movies overseas, because I think for a non-English speaking audience, these movies are, they have the same flow for a non-English speaker, I think, as they would for a, an English speaking audience. I think a big part of that is it never overcommits to the MacGuffin. And what I mean by that is that it understands that the MacGuffin doesn't need a Christopher Nolan exposition narrator to show up three times throughout a movie and consistently update you on what's happening. It doesn't care. You just need to know what it is. What are they chasing? Are they chasing a briefcase? Okay, they're chasing a briefcase. What's inside the briefcase? That doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. And I think the movies, again, are good about reminding you of what's at stake and why it's important, but not in like grandiose terms. And they'll even put it on screen in red text just so that you you can't miss it. It's like, okay, it's this guy. He's got, you know, he's got plutonium. He's in Prague, whatever it is. It's like, you know, these are the three points that you need to remember. All right, go. Everybody start running. It's interesting because... It very much feels the first Mission Impossible movie like a self-contained film. And we know that at this point, Tom Cruise has never made a sequel, could have made many sequels to several of his films, has never been interested in that. You can imagine a world where Tom Cruise goes off, does other things, Brian De Palma not interested in coming back, and that's it. You know, we look back at this Mission Impossible movie as a nice little curiosity in Tom Cruise's career, but he does decide to come back and take a stab at the sequel. For the first time in his career, Tom Cruise decides, I'm going to put the number two next to a title of something I've made. That movie, of course, is Mission Impossible 2, which comes out uh, almost exactly four years after the first one, May 24th of the year 2000. We'll go into the production context in a little bit, but I do want to ask you again, Russ, do you remember where you saw Mission Impossible 2? No, I don't. It would have been in Boston. It was probably at, you know, just a big, there had been the big, I think it was an AMC opened in Fenway. I probably saw it there, but honestly, I don't remember. I I mean, I saw it the weekend it opened. It was a John Woo movie and it was a Mission Impossible sequel. And it was like, 
and this was at a time when I didn't have a lot of time to go see movies. So I had to pick and choose. And I absolutely saw this one, you know, immediately. Because the marketing campaign for this one was huge. I mean, it was a big hit, the first one. Tom Cruise is coming back. I remember just all of the all of the key art, all of the trailers, even the soundtrack that came out had a lot of hype around it. I do have to say, with apologies to our friends at the Motion Picture Association, this is a true story. Uh, Metallica had a terrible song in the soundtrack of Mission Impossible 2 called <laughs> I Disappear. I was 15 years old at the time. What do you expect? I had my first laptop. Of course I went to Napster and illegally pirated Metallica's <laughs> I Disappear. Within like 36 hours of that, Metallica starts this like anti-piracy crusade on their music through Napster. And I am in the, uh, this is true, I am in the first wave of people <laughs> to ever get banned Incredible. from Napster. Happened to me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's my association with, uh, with the lead up. To Mission Impossible 2, but it was huge. It was huge to the point that I'm like pirating music from the soundtrack. Everybody wants to find out more about this movie. The look on this movie, more earth tones. You've got a really interesting vibe here with John Woo, this iconic action filmmaker coming out of Hong Kong. But I mean, I was a huge John Woo fan. He was one of the most significant filmmakers for me uh, in the early 1990s. So when he came to the US, I was there immediately. I like Hard Target now. I didn't really like it at the time. I liked Broken Arrow more. I liked Face Off a lot more, you know. So it was sort of a, pro- a progress of feeling like everybody wants a little piece of that John Woo action, but they don't want to actually give him the reign to make a John Woo movie. And so I was, I like Face Off a lot, but his other movies I was perpetually a little disappointed with because they just didn't feel like they were going to they they didn't feel like they were using him or he was being allowed to work to the degree that he was in his Hong Kong movies especially you know from like a better tomorrow through the end of his Hong Kong run and the best example of that i think is mission impossible 2 which we have to look at today is his most disappointing film during his very brief yeah, US era. it's high on that list. Yeah, yeah, uh, unfortunately, but I, I, I'm I'm with you. I mean, I had. Seen... Where did you see it? I mean, did you see it on the day or? So I remember this coming out. I was living in Miami at the time. The AMC Sunset Place 24 in South Miami mm. had just opened, not that long, like not that far behind this uh, coming out. So I remember going seeing it like opening day at a very new AMC. This is like (laughs) the age when like the only thing you can do when you're 15 is go to the movies. Go to the movies. Obviously by 16, you're like trying to buy beer at gas stations, but at 15, it's still the movie theaters, right? Like it's, it's before you find out you can illegally purchase beer at gas stations. So this was like the thing to do I think for the entire month of May for me, I was really looking forward to it. I have very fond memories of going to see the movie, but even back then, I remember watching the movie and expecting face off with Tom Cruise mm. and walking yeah. out and saying, wow, that, um, that was a movie. Yeah. That wasn't <laughs> what I wanted it to be. And it's, yeah. it's interesting because you can see on paper why they went with John Woo. You mentioned the visual storytelling that this franchise has always worked with. John Woo, one of the greatest visual storytelling directors of the last 30 years, uh, both in Hong Kong and during his U.S. era. Here, however, I think if he felt shackled by the Hollywood system, being shackled by a major sequel 
for Paramount, starring the world's biggest movie star, really conditions this movie. This movie does feel like a John Woo movie. There are so many trademarks of John Woo in this movie. But at the same time, that Robert Town script really, really weighs this movie down. The original cut, apparently, I, I think they've, they've mentioned that it was like three and a half hours long and rated R, what John Woo turned in, which makes sense because movies in Hong Kong are long and violent. This gets trimmed down in a way that whatever we see doesn't quite work, and it gets trimmed down to a PG-13 that isn't great, but... Um, I mean, look, the rating yeah. isn't the problem with this movie. No. It's, I think that... There's a couple of things about this. You got to remember at this point, the Mission Impossible movies are not exceptionally known for their stunt work. That's not what they are now. You know, obviously there were good stunts in the first movie and Cruz is even thinking along those lines because he opens Mission Impossible 2 with this free climbing, you know, section. And, but the thing is, it, it looks like it's an, an effects-based sequence, even though, Cruz shot it, like performed it, and it was filmed in a way that was kind of akin to the way he would do stunts now. And that's the case with a lot of this movie in that it's filmed in such a way that the filmmaking actually undermines the credibility of a lot of the action in the movie. A lot of it doesn't look very real because of the way it's it's shot and edited. So you got that. That's an issue. There's like a car chase dance romance scene <laughs> that just does I, I like if you either you like that a lot or it's it a James Bond scene in a franchise that doesn't need James Bond scenes and there's just a bunch of that like this movie isn't cast very well it it's funny you know you talk about the first movie they kind of kill off the team immediately but then they do rebuild a team and get it going and i think one of the things that's cool about these movies is that especially over time they have developed this pretty consistent team core structure so you have some sense of what you're going to get it's not always just a disposable cast of new irregulars but in mission impossible 2 it kind of feels like a disposable cast of new irregulars you know you you don't really get the sense that any of these people are going to stick around necessarily and that makes it hard to really get into you got Dugray Scott as the villain who's just he's miscast he's badly written you know, obviously the famous story with this movie is that the production on this movie went over and that prevented him from playing Wolverine in Brian Singer's X-Men movie, which is what opened the door for Hugh Jackman to be Wolverine. And, you know, we all know what that did. So that's kind of remarkable. But yeah, I think on a lot of, mo- on a lot of levels, this movie doesn't really work. It's my least favorite of the series by far. Yeah, for me as well. And it does feel like just another episode rather than a continuation of anything special. And it just, it doesn't even really feel like a John Woo movie, except here and there. And then along those lines, like Tendiwe Newton plays the female lead, who is like, there's kind of this romance between them that just feels very glib. It feels more Bond Mm -hmm. than it feels like anything out of the Mission movies. I don't think she's the best fit for the role, but I also don't think it's a very good role. And so maybe the fault is not with her. Maybe the fault is just with the writing. The whole thing feels very superficial. Mission Impossible 2 becomes a massive box office hit, opening to 57.8 million in North America. 
215 million uh, domestically total, over 330 million overseas. Once again, an overseas market share outperforming the domestic one at a point in time when this didn't usually happen. Over half a billion dollars in global box office. The top movie of the year worldwide. Of course, there's going to be a third installment, but something happens in Tom Cruise's career. He jumps on a couch. There's the couch uh, jumping. Yeah. Well, he and Nicole Kidman split. There's that. There's the couch jumping. Things changed for Tom Cruise. It was not a good couple of years for Tom Cruise. Things really got difficult for him. And in the meantime, he's trying to develop Mission 3, and he's developing Mission 3 with David Fincher, not known as a guy who's open to a lot of compromise, not known as an easygoing filmmaker. And frankly, it's kind of difficult to even imagine the two of them successfully getting a movie off the ground. And yeah, in fact, that's they why do not. I was so surprised that, that Fincher would have even been remotely interested after what happened to Thalian 3. Yeah. Fincher's already been through this rodeo with a major studio and finished out on the losing end of this. At this point, Fincher's career is really taking off. This is post seven, post panic room, David Fincher. Why? Right? Post fight club. Post um, fight club. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it just, it didn't seem like the right fit for Fincher or the right fit for the franchise, to be perfectly honest. I love the Mission Impossible movies. I love Tom Cruise as an actor. Love I love David, David Fincher, Fincher as a director. Yeah. It seems like a combination that wouldn't have worked. Ultimately, it goes to an unproven name at a film of this scale. Now, I didn't watch the Alias TV show that was uh, that had the showrunner being J.J. Abrams, who ends up coming in to direct his first feature film. A lot of the friends that, that were big fans of the show, I asked them about it, and they did confirm. They're like, you know what? There's a lot of Alias in Mission Impossible 3. There are a bunch of other things about Mission 3 that feel very TV, and it kind of even comes down to the way it's, shot in that it's like i think now you think of mission and you're thinking of imax you're thinking of wide very open lenses you're thinking of seeing these really big urban or rural landscapes or wilderness landscapes and mission three is shot very tight like it's all long lenses it feels very claustrophobic it's very the frame is very jumbled and it's like it's a very different feeling movie it's the darkest of these movies, I think, both visually and also in terms of content. Like, it's the meanest of these movies. Carrie Russell's character is killed early in the film. And it's a thing that happens in, like, it's a very brief shot. And it's one of the nastiest things in this series. Like, it's disturbing in the way that it's filmed. So I, I didn't watch this in the movies uh, for whatever reason. In 2006, where, where was I in life? I was in college in 2006. Actually, that summer, I was dating a girl in college that kept on falling asleep every time we'd go watch a movie. So just, <laughs> just as a practice, I stopped going to the movies as often. <laughs> so I missed it. I watched it on an airplane, but it kind of worked on an airplane. I've seen it several times afterwards. What I take out of this movie is, I think, what everybody takes out of this movie. There's one thing to take out of this movie. Oh, come on. Philip Seymour Hoffman as the best villain in the Mission Impossible series, full stop. Absolutely. The yeah. best cold open in the series is probably this one. And it's a very different cold open from yeah. all of the rest of them. You know, pretty much every other cold open in this series is like, it's either a stunt or it's like uh, an espionage, like a mask-based kind of twist or something. But then this one, it's... It's like a flash forward that shows that really just shows you like 
it gives you his villain. It gives you Philip Seymour Hoffman's villain. It is like, this guy is mean and this guy will absolutely do stuff you don't want to see him do. And it's funny when you go back and actually rewatch Mission Impossible 3, Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is what you take away the most from this movie, isn't really in the movie that long. He doesn't have that much screen time in my head, in my mind, in my memory. He's just this overbearing presence throughout the film, but that's how good he is. It is worth rewatching this movie just on Philip Seymour Hoffman's character alone. This is, I think, a transition movie in a way that the fourth one is as well. Uh, where, yes, it's still a standalone movie from a director. So you've got De Palma, then you have Wu, then you have J.J. Abrams, but you start getting little pieces of story and little pieces of character arcs that will be expanded in the future movies. And J.J. Abrams comes back to produce several of the movies. After this one, he gets invited back as producer, and the franchise goes in a different direction. So this is a new sort of origin point uh, for the movies. It has a very, uh, like, a way different feel than the two movies that precede it. And it worked for me. Because of that, it worked for me. It it is a movie that I like to rewatch quite a bit. You've got really great casting with like Lawrence Fishburne shows up, which is great. Michelle Monaghan starts to play a very significant role and she's going to be significant through the series all the way up through Fallout. I mean, Fallout really is the conclusion of the story that is begun in Mission Impossible 3. And that's part of why Fallout works so well because of the way they handle that. But yeah, there's a lot of good choices made here. I think J.J. Abrams is very good with casting and that helps bolster this movie quite a lot. Unfortunately, at the box office, it is the lowest performing film of the Mission Impossible franchise to date. Uh, Opens at $47.7 million in May 5th of 2006. A good start, solid start, I think on pace with others. Lower, but on pace. Domestically, it sputters out to $134 million, 34% of its global market share with $264 million coming in from overseas. So you go from a Mission Impossible 2 that makes nearly $550 million worldwide, the top movie all over the world of 2000. And in 2006, just six years removed, with that Tom Cruise brand as a star, deteriorating and a little depleted because of some of those media appearances, this movie doesn't hit the $400 million mark. Still a huge hit, but when we talk about these IPs and what they mean to these major global studios, not great. Not great, and I think there's a little bit of a red light in the back of everybody's heads over at Paramount thinking, how much more is there to this series? Should we hedge our bets? What's going to happen in the next one? Do we hand it off? Do we go in a different direction? There's a lot of pressure when Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol comes out five years later in December of 2011, and to make that pressure even bigger, Tom Cruise, who's really at the center of all of this, of conversations where people are actually having, is Tom Cruise still the same movie star that he used to be in the 80s and 90s? He takes a massive risk. Bringing in Brad Bird, a filmmaker who is best known for animated films like The Iron Giant and The Incredibles, giving him the director's chair for his first live action film in a film where, let's be honest here, if Ghost Protocol doesn't work, there's not another one made, period. All of that stuff feeds into the development of Ghost Protocol. It's very uncertain what it's going to be. It's uncertain if it's still going to be a Tom Cruise series. Is it still going to be a series? But they make a couple of interesting choices. 
I remember on my end, after having seen the third one, not really knowing where this was going to go, I wasn't really interested in Tom Cruise's career at this point. I think I was more interested in the weird art house movies he made in the late 90s. But a good friend of mine, actually, uh, from China, a co-worker, who had been living in the U.S. maybe for like two, three years, didn't ask me to go see a single movie and like begged me to go to a midnight screening opening night of this movie. I have no idea why. To this day, I I don't talk to this guy anymore, but it's the one thing I remember about him, him going out of his way saying, hey, man, can we please hang out and watch watch Ghost Protocol at midnight on opening night at the Regal Union Square in New York City. And uh, listen, my job is to be really good at watching movies. I, I do this professionally. Russ, you do this as well. We've made a career out of something that should not be a career. Dude, do not ask me to watch a movie at midnight. I am not good at that. This is a great movie. I love this movie, but I, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't keep my eyes open when I saw it at midnight on opening night. But there's a lot to talk about here. I think in my rewatches, I've, I've grown this great fondness and appreciation for it. And I have to go back to a quote that director Brad Bird gave uh, to our friends over at the Light Diffuse podcast in an interview. Brad Bird saying that he wanted to come in to this movie because he quote want to have great gadgets in it and i want to have them all fail the technology is a problem not a solution and that is exactly what makes ghost protocol work so well as a movie you're used to seeing all of these super secret gadget spy action movies and they always have these cool technology things that that get them out of jams no The real drama, the real suspense is when the technology fails. And that's represented so well in the movie's centerpiece and most iconic sequence, the Burj Khalifa climb, you know, where Ethan Hunt is given these gloves by Simon Pegg's character, these gloves that can grip onto vertical surfaces and they've got lights on them. It's like, you know, if the light's green, you're good. And he's like, what if the light's red? Uh, dead because you know when the battery on the glove fails it's not going to stick anymore and it's not very far into tom cruise's climb up the side of this building that the gloves fail and it just becomes it is such an exceptionally well-designed set piece and it's exceptionally filmed and it's filmed with IMAX cameras. You know, it's one of those things where you get the movie and you've got, you know, the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world. And when you're seeing it in a full IMAX screen and it goes from being sort of, you know, the letterboxed image and the whole screen opens up to like show you the Burj Khalifa for a flyover. And then it's just like, there's nothing else quite like it. And I think that Bird and Cruz and everyone else involved were extremely smart because they promoted it as this thing where it's like Tom Cruise is climbing the Burj Khalifa himself. You know, he's on top of the world's tallest building. Here he is. Here's photos and videos of him. Does he have some wires on? Sure. Are you going to get up there? Are you (laughs) kidding? Like, never. And I think that, like, this is the turning point for these movies where the stunts become the central axis on which the movies turn. You know, it's like, we're going to come up with these set pieces. We're going to, like, Cruise is going to go all out. 
which is wild because at the same time they're talking about this is the movie that's going to be his last one. And in a way it's kind of the first one, you know, because it's the one where it's like the full formula is in place and the filmmaking is firing on all cylinders. It's still got kind of a bland, forgettable villain. I would challenge, you know, people who casually like this movie's these movies to like, tell me the name of the villain in this movie or who plays him or what it does. You know, I think that one of the biggest criticisms of these films is that the, the villains are kind of bland except for Philip Seymour Hoffman. And then the Sean Heron movies five and six goes a long way to giving you a good villain. But I mean, the biggest downside of ghost protocol is like, who's the bad guy? Why? Who cares? It doesn't matter. I mean, the plot to this movie is they're chasing a briefcase. Yeah. Which is fine. I mean, like, it's listen, fine. That's, that's the plot to Pulp Fiction. Nobody yeah. cares about that, right? Like, just embrace it, have fun. And it's a lot of fun. This movie's a lot of fun. Behind the scenes, it seems, as we were mentioning a second ago, the script. I mean, you're at a point where you just have to throw it out. Mm. We're at a point where I think everyone that I've, that I've heard talking about these movies basically admits we start making them by figuring out the set pieces first. And then we go back and figure out the script as we go along, sometimes as late as day of shooting go along. And you can tell that, but the action set pieces are so good that you don't really care. They do it the one time in three. Yeah. And and that's the structure of three and it's fine. And it's a little bit of why I like three less than a bunch of the other movies. But ultimately when you get to the, you know, Michelle Monaghan kind of becomes a stand in for everybody. It's like... You know, he has to save Michelle Monaghan when, when it comes up that he has to, you know, save her character. It's because she's represented for like a third of the population of the planet. It's like she happens to be here, but all these other people are going to die too. It's not like it's just her. She just becomes kind of the emotional focal point. Yeah. And I think it works. It's a movie that works at the box office rather well, saves a franchise, goes a long way in reigniting Tom Cruise's career in 2011. Opening in the holiday corridor of uh, the Christmas times, it goes limited to wide. We won't go into the nuances of opening weekend when movies do that because it opened like 400 screens and then expanded to over 3,000 on uh, on the Christmas weekend. It did well. Take our word for it. We do this for a living. Domestically, it plays out to 209 million. Overseas, it does 485. I brought up my friend from China who asked me to go see this movie specifically because this is the first movie in the series that breaks $100 million in the Chinese market. And I think that's a reflection of the popularity of these movies in China. It's just going to increase with the sequels. Of that 485 million, as we mentioned, 101 coming from China alone, a global total of $694 million, the highest earning movie in the franchise globally to uh, at this point in history. And that means, of course, that we're going to get a fifth one. On July 31st, 2015, Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation opens in North America. Again, going with our usual question, Russ, you remember seeing this? Yeah. I mean, I I saw this one in Los Angeles. I think I saw it at the IMAX at the Universal Universal City Walk. I think I saw it there. But I mean, I know I saw an IMAX press screening in Los Angeles. I always saw this at a press screening as well. Yeah. It was a press screening for me. 
I think it was at the AMC Empire in Times Square. Uh, usually Paramount does that. Sometimes they do uh, Lincoln Square in 72nd Street. But yeah, I remember seeing this in a press screening. What I will tell you that I remember the most out of the lead up to the release of this movie is at CinemaCon that year in 2015, Tom Cruise being there in person and winning over that room within 30 seconds of smiling at them and then showing them footage of him dangling off the side of an airplane. That's what I remember basically in the run-up, just this great CinemaCon presentation with Tom Cruise in person selling this movie. So I was excited to go see it in the press screening. The movie works. There's stunts. This is a movie where you can tell that the stunts are really where the entire focus of the movie is because I don't really remember anything else. The Syndicate, which is like, the Spectre equivalent of the Mission Impossible TV show, they bring them in as like the bad guy here. Yeah, um, yeah, they met, they they introduced that actually. That's that's part of the Chris McQuarrie rewrite. In four, they introduced the syndicate at the end of four, and that kind of tells you like, oh, maybe they're doing something different here than we were expecting them to do. And then indeed, you know, contrary to whatever rumors there were about four, like. Jeremy Renner's character from Four returns in Rogue Nation, the fifth movie. But so does Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt in a very active central role. And it's like, you know, the kind of stunt and IMAX spectacle of Ghost Protocol has kind of reinvigorated not just the franchise, but Cruise himself as the central figure of the franchise. It's like, nope, he's not going anywhere. He's going to keep doing this. And, you know, like you say, when they they kick off, you know, the promo run for this movie pretty early by showing off footage of him hanging off the side of a of a large airplane in flight, it's like, yeah, give me this movie immediately, you know? <laughs> And when we look at not only the Mission Impossible series, you, you mentioned how these movies stand in contrast to the James Bond series. I mentioned how the first Mission Impossible is launched six months after GoldenEye is launched. Mission Impossible 3 comes out the same year as Casino Royale comes out. So it's a little bit of a rebirth. Tough competition. franchises. <laughs> yeah. And they, and they sort of evolve very differently. But something that the Bond movies have always borrowed from is this heritage from Alfred Hitchcock, from visual storytelling, from suspense over action. Whenever they've departed from that and, and gone more into camp or into just doing what everybody else thinks it's cool, which I think sometimes Bond movies can be too trendy. And I think that's a huge flaw of them. They're too trendy, but they're but they're always like three years behind the trend because it takes so long to make a Bond movie. It's like yeah. their Bond movies seem inevitably to be reacting to trends from like four years ago. And it's rare where a movie like Casino Royale, even though it's not ahead of the trend, like with parkour, it does it so well that it feels like it owns it in a way that's not always common to the Bond movies. Yeah. I mean, even something like uh, there's like a huge subplot in Casino Royale on playing poker. The poker at a thing. Casino. Remember that's that's at the time when every time you turned on ESPN, it'd just be poker. There were poker tournaments. Just yeah, totally. At, at and that kills that movie dead. Like, I love Casino Royale except for the poker stuff, which <sighs> just so destroys bad. that movie for me. It's I so get bad. so bored during But that's something that Mission Impossible gets right in that they always go back to that DNA of Hitchcock and specifically the DNA of, of a movie like um, North by Northwest, which is the 
proto James Bond movie where you get a charming star, you put him in a position where he's in the middle of a global espionage mystery. He doesn't know what's going on. He has to travel all over the world. He's doing all these stunts. And that's what I think Mission Impossible gets right, where they're able to, instead of lean into like, oh, well, the kids like poker. Let's do poker. No, no, no. Go back to the prototype. Go yeah, back to North by Northwest. What did you learn from North by Northwest? How can we get that ethos and improve on it? I think Rogue Nation does that, obviously, with the obvious homage in that Vienna opera sequence. There's a number of weaknesses about this one that keep it out of like the top tier of mission movies for me. But when those set pieces are firing, they hit really well and they, they work exceptionally well. And when we look at this franchise as a whole, as we've been mentioning, it starts in this conception of let's get Tom Cruise to work with one-off directors that have a name, that have a very specific style, and let's try to infuse this visual style that's very well-defined of these filmmakers with a great background into a franchise. That's a fascinating pitch to me. And I think that's why even... Mission Impossible 2 that doesn't work all the way is an interesting movie and why I will rewatch it. It's more interesting than many movies like it. Uh, Mission Impossible 1 has that. The third one, even Brad Bird coming in for the fourth one, it feels like a Brad Bird live action movie. The fifth one strays away from that in a way that it doesn't hurt the franchise, I don't think. And I think that's something that Macquarie gets right in being the director of this title. You mentioned Macquarie coming in, doing a very late stage rewrite before reshoots on uh, the prior installment. He comes in as the trusted confidant to take over not only the screenplay for Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, but also the directing of it. Something that he said in this wonderful podcast series, uh, Light the Fuse, is I think very interesting to bring up here. Macquarie telling the podcast that he doesn't see himself as a director that needs to put his own personal stamp on a movie when he's working in a franchise. He sees himself as a steward of that franchise, as a caretaker of that franchise. McQuire has this ability to be a little bit more flexible and go with the flow of all of the stresses that these movies involve, meaning you have to figure out the stunts, you have to figure out the set pieces. Don't lose sight of the story. He's a writer, and he's a good writer at that, a very talented screenwriter. So he doesn't completely ignore that aspect of the story or characters. And I just think he's the perfect fit for it, for, for the franchise that now I hope he doesn't depart it because I think he's perfectly made for these movies and as integral as Tom Cruise is. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, and also with him, you've got to look at, it's like he, so in, you know, he made, he directly, obviously he became famous for writing the usual suspects, which is, um, you know, Brian Singer's breakout movie. It didn't represent the same sort of breakout for Macquarie that it did for Singer because he's a screenwriter. The things work differently, unfortunately. But he directs a movie called The Way of the Gun, which is a very good and kind of like buried underseen movie. Like it's still kind of difficult to see The Way of the Gun, you know? And that's in 2000. That movie comes out. McHugh doesn't do another, doesn't direct another film until Jack Reacher released in 2012, starring Tom Cruise. And when that movie comes out, there's a lot of conversation about how Tom Cruise is completely the wrong choice for Jack Reacher. Physically, they are very different. You know, Jack Reacher as written in however many novels there are. I've read all of them, by the way. I'm not dismissing Jack Reacher. I love these books. I've read all of the first 
probably 12 of those books I've read at least twice each. And I have read all of the rest until Lee Child handed it off to like his brother. So, you know, Jack Reacher comes out, Cruz doesn't on paper seem like a guy, but he and McQuarrie make a really compelling movie that I think gets better with rewatching. Like I like that movie a little more every time I see it. It has a very distinct visual style. So it's like, it's not weird to say like, why don't, do you want to do mission? You know, and it all through this time, he and Tom Cruise are consistently working together. They're Macquarie is like rewriting stuff that Cruise is a part of, or he's just writing the script outright. So when it comes time to do Rogue Nation, he almost seems like the most obvious choice. Like he and Cruise have a creative partnership that's very solid. And indeed, I think he is the best choice for it. And I think they, it's weird, like in my mind, Rogue Nation is better than it actually is. And it has these standout sequences. And it's it's a very capable movie, but it also does get a little lost in the talkiness. Like Sean Harris's villain is a better villain than in most of the other Mission movies. He's second only to uh, the Philip Seymour Hoffman character. But here his impact isn't as intense as it might be because the whole thing is just a little... It's a little chewy. There's a lot to get through. But it sets the stage beautifully for Mission Impossible Fallout, which at this point I think is the best movie in the series. Mission Impossible Fallout coming out July 27th of 2018. The movie that killed MoviePass, the first iteration <laughs> of the $9.99 all-you-can-see subscription service, completely obliterated by the demand for this title on its opening weekend. I saw this at the Landmark in LA, my only visit to the Landmark oh, in cool. LA, curiously to go see a Mission Impossible movie. I came in with a set of expectations and positive expectations. I knew what Mission Impossible movies were like. I've been watching Mission Impossible movies since I was 11 years old. I know what I'm walking into. And I walked out of Mission Impossible Fallout by seeing something I had never seen before. Uh, this actually made my like top 20 that I, that I turned into different publications. And I wasn't the only one. Many people did. Yeah, I think one of my favorite movies of 2018, one of the best action movies of I think, period. Uh, honestly, that good. Uh, yeah, when when did you see it? How did you see it? I saw it at a press screening in LA. I probably saw it at the same uh, Universal, Universal City Walk. I saw it a couple of times because I liked it a lot. <laughs> so yeah, that was my experience. Uh, it opens to a franchise high $61.2 million domestically. Ends up making another franchise high on the domestic market, $220 million. Overseas, it makes over half a billion, 571 million outside of North America, including another franchise high here, $181 million coming from China, the highest grossing Tom Cruise movie at the time with $791 million worldwide. Number one in the franchise domestically, number one in the franchise overseas and globally, and there's good reason why. This is a movie that delivers for audiences, period. McHugh is back in the movie. I think that uh, first time that that happens, uh, that a director comes back to direct something and uh, he tops himself. Uh, he tops himself really. Um, yeah, what, what did you think of the movie? I love it. I mean, this is the first, you know, th this is the sixth film, but this is the first one that is like 
an explicit outright sequel to the previous movie. You know, they're all of them are related, especially beginning with three, you know, with the Michelle Monaghan character being introduced in three and the Simon Pegg character who becomes more and more a part of things as the series goes on to the point where, you know, now we've got like the core IMF team is played by Tom Cruise returning Ving Rhames, who's been around since the beginning. And Simon Pegg, who has like a, become more and more of like a right hand to Tom Cruise kind of role over the years, which really begins with four and is carried through all the way to this and, you know, probably into the next one as well. But, you know, this one, so this one's kind of a challenge coming off of like a relatively talky, uh, you know, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. They set up the story and the stakes in one, in this one very clearly, very simply. It doesn't feel simplistic. It just feels like, here, we're going to give you a thing. And throughout, it's like the ties to previous movies, I think, are handled exceptionally well. I think this movie is beautifully filmed. I love the way it looks. The tone of it overall is great. The score is terrific. I think this is just a beautifully crafted action movie and one that really yeah, like you said, doesn't have a lot of peers. There are not very many movies like this. And it ultimately brings a bunch of character stories to a close in a way that is very effective. Like it's, you know, certainly aspects of this movie are going to continue as story threads into the next film, but the core emotional arc that's going on here is handled really, really well. And I think it gives this movie a power that the others don't have. Because as we've talked about, it's like, oh, the characters don't matter as much. It's about the spectacle and the movement. And here it's still about the spectacle and the movement, which are as good as the series has ever been. But now the characters matter more and their fates and their relationships are more impactful, which gives you just this whole extra range of power that the other movies in the series, by and large, aren't even aiming for. You know, my my obnoxious pull quote for this movie, if I were a person that gave obnoxious pull quotes, would be, this is the best James Bond movie ever made. Yeah, it is. But at the same time, it's like, it's so not a James Bond movie. Yeah, for that reason, you know? right? Like, be- yeah. just because of how much it refuses to fall into that trap. And how many action franchises, Russ, over the years, over the decades, fall into that trap? Can we make a James Bond version of this? And what you end up coming up with is something derivative, something boring, something talky, something completely forgettable. There is no version of a James Bond version of this. There's just James Bond. And those don't always work either, right? (laughs) Right. But Mission Impossible, I think, succeeds just because it avoids going down that road. And we talk about that competition, GoldenEye. Mission Impossible, six months removed in release. Mission Impossible 3, a reimagining, basically, of the Mission Impossible franchise, coming out the same year as Casino Royale. But I think that's why Mission Impossible stands apart. It it doesn't go into that temptation of trying to out James Bond, James Bond. It's its own thing. It does its own thing. It's a fully formed version of its own thing. It has its own identity. And I think audiences have that connection. And you can see that, that we're now in a position where these Mission Impossible movies with the same creative team, 
and with the same star are still coming out and bringing in audiences. And you've already had two entire James Bond relaunches <laughs> during the same time frame. You've had Pierce Brosnan do his thing and end his thing. And you've had Daniel Craig do his thing and end his thing. And God knows what happens with that series now. I don't know what the third James Bond thing is going to look like. But while they're figuring it out, we're going to keep on seeing Tom Cruise doing kick-ass Mission Impossible movies. We know that's coming. And I think that that is the best thing we can say about how difficult it's been to keep this fresh, keep this exciting. The only thing I'm scared about is if this series peaked at Fallout. And I'll tell you that one thing that I I don't want to overlook in this movie is, well, there are a couple of things. Number one, Rebecca Ferguson's character and performance gets stronger in this movie. She plays a more central kind of emotional role and she does a great job with it. And then Henry Cavill. Oh, great. An actor I really like and who rarely gets roles in movies that I really like. I wish, like, I love the idea of him as Superman. I don't like those movies. I like the idea of him in The Man from Uncle. I am not one of the big fans of that movie. That movie has its fans. I'm not really one of them. I love him in this. I think this is a perfect role for him. I think it it makes him look awesome. You know, it's like, but at the same time, it's not afraid to punch him around a little bit. You know, there's the the very well used image of this movie of like in the the exceptionally staged bathroom fight scene. I've never seen a man reload his arms before. And the great thing, awesome. though, the best thing is that Henry Cavill reloads his arms and it's beautiful. And then he gets rocked. He gets <laughs> absolutely destroyed. And nobody thinks about that back half of that sequence. <laughs> but that's so important. And we brought up a criticism in the Fast and the Furious series in that whenever you have hand-to-hand combat uh, fight sequences in Fast and the Furious, it's like the rock can't get can't possibly lose. Yeah. Even when he quote unquote loses to stay them, he doesn't really lose, right? Like none of those characters, whenever they fight, get hurt or get rocked. In this bathroom sequence, yeah. completely annihilates Superman and Tom Cruise, exactly. which is something that you don't expect people to do. And actually, I would actually say not too many people that play Superman and not too many people with the star power of Tom Cruise would be smart and humble enough to say, yes. I want to lose a fight. I want to get my butt kicked on screen. But they're smart enough to go there in this movie, and it works perfectly. You, It works so much better. And the way that sequence is filmed is great. The set is beautiful. Like it's the you're you're never gonna walk into like a venue, like a large event venue bathroom in your life that looks even vaguely like this. And it's a perfectly designed set for this fight. Like you can tell that. It was fundamentally put together in concert with the choreography of the fight. And it's like, that's kind of the level at which this movie is operating. Like everything from the top down all works together. It's it's all designed to work together. The cold open uh, in this movie, I think, is uh, probably a close second to the cold open in Mission Impossible 3, where, as we're saying, there's certain things that make the Mission Impossible franchise stand out. The fact that you don't have big gun, well, you do have big gunfights, but it's not all that you get in these movies. There's a lot of sleight of hand. There's a lot of trickery. Uh, there's a mousetrap sequence, uh, misdirection in the cold open in this movie that I, I really, really like. I think works exceptionally well. And of course, it leads into the best third act climax in the entire franchise, which usually for these movies, just the way they're structured, the third act 
is usually just all falling action because the, the climax comes usually like at the halfway point of most of these films. Not in this one, because uh, if you are a fan of helicopter fights, and I did not know that helicopter fights were something I was interested in until I saw this movie. Do I have the best helicopter fight for you? <laughs> With Henry Cavill, for me, we talked about this series having villain issues outside of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think Henry Cavill just nails it. Oh, another spoiler. Too bad. Sorry, guys. Sorry, Henry Cavill. Double you agent. Know, you kind of know from the beginning that he's a it's bad sort of like, There's not really. Oh, yeah. You'll <laughs> there's be not a lot of mystery there. We won't so tell you who he movie. is or anything, but he's, <laughs> the, the idea that like, oh, he's not a good guy is like, yeah, you, you pretty much know it. And there's a sweet helicopter fight at the end. A sweet, sweet helicopter fight. Uh, that's exciting. I'm, I remember I'm at the Landmark in L.A. watching this movie. And I have gone through the entire large soda that I had purchased <laughs> before the film started. And really? I am just glued to my seat. There's I no way you're not, getting up. I am paying a cleaning fee before I am getting up. And I think it's like that is sort of representative of that thing that you're talking about where this this series, generally speaking, is not chasing trends. It's not like, oh, the cool action thing is this. It's like cool in, in these movies, it's Tom wants to fly a helicopter. What can we do? How can we how work about, it in? How about we fight? How about we do a helicopter chase scene that ends with a, as a helicopter fight scene that also has hand-to-hand combat in it? Like, what if we did all of that? And it it feels... And set it on top of a mountain. You could have set it anywhere. Why set it on top? Why not set it on top of a mountain? Because you have Just IMAX cameras. So, like, <laughs> it looks awesome when you, it looks when you amazing. film it on IMAX. Yeah. yeah, it is spectacular to look at. It's beautifully staged. Yeah, I mean, I have nothing bad to say about this movie at all but it really does like and you see that even in the way they're showing you know the preparation for the next movie where it's like okay we spent two years planning and designing and executing you know a base jump off of a motorcycle that tom cruise rides off a ramp (laughs) off of a cliff you know and it's like that's not responding to a trend or anything it's just like you know how crazy can we get I don't know. That's pretty crazy. The interesting thing about Dead Reckoning is, you know, there's a bunch of stuff in Dead Reckoning that kind of looks like they're they're doing like, what if we kind of revisit some ideas from the first movie? Like there's some helicopter and train stuff in Dead Reckoning and there, Kittredge, the, who's one of the main characters in the first movie. We haven't seen him since the first movie. He's back for Dead Reckoning, played by the same actor. Super cool. Okay, great. And that's why I think both of us are extremely excited to see Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 of a two-part series. The next one is scheduled for release next year. Russ, thank you so much for joining us. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with the Box Office Company, Box Office Studios, and Record Edit Podcast. New episodes come out every Thursday, so please subscribe, rate, like, share it with other people that you think would like what we have to say, and don't share it with those that are going to say mean things to us via email. We'll talk to you again next week.